Hello, my name is Larry Hiles. I'm the preaching minister at the Milford Church of Christ. Thank you for taking the time to watch or listen to this message. Please feel free to share it with friends. Also, if it's impacted your life in any way, reach out to us and let us know how. If you live in the Centerburg or Mount Vernon area, we'd love to have you be our guest. We're located at 3648 Johnstown Road in Centerburg, Ohio. We look forward to the opportunity of meeting you. Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 1. At the beginning of the year, we started a journey through the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And the goal of this series of lessons is the same goal that Paul had in writing this great letter. He, he wanted the Roman church and, and people in Rome who had yet, not yet given their lives to Christ to know the power of the gospel, uh, the sanctifying, saving power of God's word. And so this is what Paul uh, wrote this letter for. The reader and the hearer of this great letter would have an encounter with Jesus Christ and have their lives forever changed. And, and thus far, we've focused in on the who. The who is Paul. He was once an enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now he's a fearless proclaimer of his gospel. And the what is the gospel message? And, and what is that message? Well, to simplify it this morning, it's simple, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that a holy, loving God cannot have a relationship with sinful man. Therefore, he provided a way back to himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. We last left Paul with these words. He said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. Listen, as I uh, pointed out last week, Paul's only hope for the world was found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and this is why you might remember going back to verses 14 and 15, where he declared that he had this obligation both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, to the wise and to the foolish. And, and that obligation was to proclaim the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. For Paul, there was no other way. And this morning, my goal for us is to take a little bit of an unpleasant journey this morning because what Paul's going to do is he's going to shift focus from the power of the gospel to proving the need for the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your love, for your word, and for this opportunity we have to gather here today uh, for the purpose of your word being proclaimed, Lord, for the purposes of us having an encounter with Christ. And, and so, Lord, I pray that you'll prepare our hearts and minds and put us in a place, God, to surrender our will to yours. We love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. How many people in the room have ever bought a diamond ring? If you go to buy a diamond ring, and not even just a diamond ring, maybe it's even diamond earrings or whatever, uh, you go to the jeweler, you walk into the jeweler, and you point out whatever piece of jewelry you want, and before they take out that piece of jewelry, do you remember what they do? Uh, they pull out this black cloth, and they lay this black cloth on the counter, and then they get a light situated, uh, and then they'll pull out your diamond. And, and once they put the beauty of that diamond on the backdrop of that black cloth, they turn that light on so that you can see the exquisite details of this diamond that you want to buy. Uh, the truth is, is this is what Paul's doing here in this section of the book of Romans. He's pointing out the sinfulness of man. And before the gospel can be opened up and laid bare to mankind, what he wants us to understand, what he wanted the church in Rome to understand is, is listen, this is why we have this need. We have this need because of the sinfulness of man. 
Truth is, is that many of us in the United States of America, we don't see a need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, there are people who need this stuff, but not us, right? Life is good. I'm a good person. And, and compared to the next person, I'm great. And sure, I believe in God just as much as the other guy or the other gal, but this whole thing of sin and wrath and sin and wrath and, 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 and repentance, this is just not something that I need to partake in. But when you take a look around our world, you do see a great need. And oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we we see the need in others and and we don't see it in ourselves. The same was true in Paul's day in the city of Rome. Life was good, right? It was the capital city of the Roman Empire. There was money. There was power. There was pleasure. There was peace. There was salvation. So with your Bibles open, what we're going to do is we're going to dig through Romans 1, 18 through 32. But before we do, I want you to hear these words again before we read the first verse. And here's what it says. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then Paul drops these words. I mean, thus far you think, great, right? This is awesome. But then Paul says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. When we think about God today, we often want to ignore the reality of God's wrath. Uh, we, we love to focus on those attributes, right? Those attributes of love, of mercy, of grace, of acceptance, of patience, of forgiveness. And, and Paul has just declared that the righteousness of God has been revealed through the gospel. And if the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel, there's another aspect of God that's also revealed in the gospel. And that aspect of God is his justice and, and, and his wrath. And hearing the name of God tied to wrath strikes fear in the hearts of many. And and truth be told, this is one of the reasons that that many say they can't believe in God. Uh, The British philosopher Bertrand Russell was one of those that couldn't believe in a God that would express wrath on his creation. And our conception of the wrath of God is often tied to the wrath of a dad. And our dads, when we look back at them, oftentimes they're Punishment and their wrath was tied to sin and anger, but God's wrath is always tied to his justice and it's always tied to his righteousness. So if God's righteousness is attained through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, friends, this is something that we have to grasp this morning, then, then, then God's wrath is, is received when we fail to accept Jesus Christ as Lord. The the verses are not going to be up on the screen, but John 3.36 declares that very message. So this morning, my goal is for us to look at three things. Uh, We're going to look at the reasons for wrath and and how God's wrath is expressed. And, And finally, I want us to finish with a piece of good news, and that good news is how we can avoid wrath. So what are the reasons for wrath? Our text this morning gives us two reasons, and the first one is this. Mankind has suppressed the truth of God. Look at verses 19 and 20. Because that which is known is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. I love the way Paul ends that 
verse right there, so that they are without excuse. Truth be told that we're not going to be able to stand in front of God and declare, Lord, I had no specific revelation of you. There there were people in Paul's day that might want to say that, and there are people in our day that might want to declare that because they don't know this word. Therefore, they have no specific revelation from God. Therefore, there's no expectation to live according to God's ways. But Paul has clearly said in these verses, that they're without excuse. Why? Well, just look at creation. I mean, for me, this was how I came to believe in God before I believed in Jesus. I guess you might say that I was a theist before I was a Christian because I looked at creation and I understood there had to be a creator no matter what the 10th grade biology teacher tried to tell me, no matter what they tried to say when they put up the evolutionary chart. I've told you before, The teacher had just declared that evolution is a survival of the fittest, and then he put up the chart that we've evolved from, and I raised my hand, and I asked the question, and I said, if it's the survival of the fittest, and the weaker species has to die off, and we evolved from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? Uh, I was kicked out of class that day. Uh, There was another time I can remember sitting in class and, and daydreaming, Uh, And there was a map of the world that was up on the wall. And I remember looking at that map and I curiously thought, you know, if you slide this over here, it almost looks like that these are pieces of a puzzle that fit together. And then I read in God's word in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, that in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided, not divided in the sense of humanity at the Tower of Babel, but divided in the sense of water separating us. You see, so I think you can look at creation and understand that there is a creator. And, when, and think about this with me. Doesn't it take more faith to believe that we've evolved from some celestial pond scum uh, that somehow ended up in some dark recesses in the corner of our galaxy than to believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? You see, when our friend Charles Darwin came along, many intellectuals wanted to run to him. Why? Well, I believe it gave them a convenient excuse to say there's no specific revelation from God. I believe it gave them a convenient excuse to suppress the truth about God. I mean, think about it with me for a moment, right? If God is not real, then neither is the commandment you shall not commit adultery. If God is not real, then neither is the commandment that you shall not murder. If God is not real, then neither is the commandment you shall have no other gods before me. If God is not real, then neither is God's word when it declares that marriage is between one man and one woman. Friends, it's a convenient truth when we declare God is not real, that there is no creator. But God's word clearly says through the apostle Paul that we're without excuse. We're without excuse. When you think about God and his word, it makes sense to me that there's an order to creation and creation points to that reality. All of creation does that. Did you know that birds navigate by the stars? How do we know this? You can raise a bird from the time it hatches in a building where they've never seen the sky and you can project an artificial sky on the ceiling much like they do in the science centers around the world today and those birds will immediately orient themselves toward home. How do they do that? No one knows, but God does. Did you know there's a fish called the archer fish? And have you ever seen this, this fish? It, it shoots water 
out and it hits insects. And, and the whole purpose for this, it's not to kill the insect because the insect doesn't die. They don't eat the insect. And so scientists have thought, well, it's obviously just for the enjoyment of the archer fish. Why do they do this? Well, no one knows, but the creator does. Did you know that the earth is 25,000 miles in circumference? It weighs six septillion, 588 tons. It hangs perfect, perfectly in space. If it were any closer to the sun, the earth would be scorched every day. If it were any further away, then we would freeze to death. The earth spins a thousand miles an hour with perfect precision so that we're not thrown about all the time. Time is kept to the split second, and the same time that it is spinning at a thousand miles an hour, it's careening through space around the sun in an orbit of 586 million miles at a speed of a thousand miles a minute. Talk about a stomach-turning ride at a theme park. This is what God has created, and you just expect a logical thinking person to think that this happened accidentally. We could go on driving this stake further into the ground, but I think the point is proven. It takes more faith to believe that we're here by accident, and which really, I don't think it's faith. I think it's a convenient faith to suppress the truth about God, to suppress the truth about the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, here's a second reason for wrath. Mankind has replaced the worship of the creator with the creation. Look at verses 21 through 23. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was dark and professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Do you remember how Satan was able to tempt Eve and Adam? Do you remember what happened? He came into the garden. He slithered in uh, right up next to Eve. And this is the picture I get in my mind anyway. And it all started with a question. And that question was this. Did God really say? Did God really say that you're not to eat of any of the trees in the garden? And then, of course, Eve answers, and I'm paraphrasing here. Well, well, no, we can eat of these trees, but we just can't eat of that tree over there, nor can we touch it. For the moment we touch it, we'll surely die. And then Satan knew he had her. Well, well, God, you won't surely die. Here's what God wants. He wants to keep you from being like him. And at that moment, Eve realized this, and, and she rejected the truth of God's word. She rejected the consequences of God's word, and she replaced herself and her husband in place of God. Truth is, is, is that's what we continue to do today. We place ourselves in the position of God and we worship ourselves, humanity, over God and his word. You see, truth is, is we don't have a sin problem. We have a worship problem. We worship humanity and we walk away from God. And as human beings, the reality is, is that we're designed to worship someone or something. And if it's not going to be God, then it's going to be ourselves. And so here's what we got to understand is that one of the most ironic points in human history was found back in 1933. In 1933, a group of liberal theologians and college professors uh, decided that humanity was done with religion, and they wrote what was known as the Humanist Manifesto. Humans had all the answers in themselves. Listen to this one paragraph. 
The time has come for widespread recognition of the radical changes in religious beliefs throughout the modern world. The time has passed for mere revision of traditional attitudes. Science and economic change have disrupted the old beliefs. Religions the world over are under the necessity of coming to terms with new conditions created by a vastly increased knowledge and experience. What was that vastly increased knowledge and experience? Evolution. Charles Darwin. In every field of human activity, the vital movement is now in the direction of a candid and explicit humanism, claiming to be wise. They became fools. And they exchanged the corrupt, incorruptible for the corruptible. Oh, how I wish that were it. As human beings, we've continued to walk down a path As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, what we've got to realize from history is that in less than 10 years from this point, 6 million Jews would be slaughtered by a humanist. I love this text here, right? It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And and friends, do you know what that word fool means? Now, I'm not just making this up. I looked it up in, uh, in a Greek dictionary. That word means this. It means stupid. It means idiotic, it means dumb, it means moronic. When we reject the truth of God and his word and we elevate ourselves to the point of worship, it's stupid, it's dumb, it's idiotic, it's moronic. And a moronic society will do some crazy things, right? A moronic society will stop protecting the relationships that produce life. And you know what those relationships are, right? A husband and a wife. And an idiotic society will say that marriage can be between anyone or anything. And then we stop protecting life itself, the child in the womb, and we'll do it under the guise of women's health care or reproductive rights or some other way of walking away from God and his word. So please show me that we don't have a need for the gospel in our world. Please show me that we've not run away from God and his word. Please show me that we're not living out the wrath of God in our world today. I don't think you can. And when I look at our world and I look at our immediate context of our world, right here in Centerburg, Ohio, we see the results of wrath all around us. We see them. Verse 18, once again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. See, when you think about wrath, there are different expressions of God's wrath in the Bible. There's eternal wrath, and this is the wrath that the Bible refers to as hell. It's described as a lake of fire where the worm that eats away at the flesh will not die, where the fires of hell will not stop, and where there'll be an everlasting torment upon the souls who are there a weeping and gnashing of teeth. And and since the wrath of God that Paul was speaking about was present, this isn't it. There's eschatological wrath, and it's the wrath that will fall upon the earth just before Christ returns. And and, and this is described in various places in Scripture. There'll be earthquakes and famines and wars and disease and, and mass death and destruction. There's cataclysmic wrath. There are times in the history that God has brought about a cataclysmic wrath. Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD, this is the city of Pompeii being buried by a volcano, the tsunami that killed thousands, earthquakes all over the world. I, I used to deny this form of God's wrath, but no longer. There's a sowing and reaping wrath. Some might point to AIDS as being a, 
an example of this kind of wrath, and, and I agree. Some might point to COVID as being an example of this kind of wrath, and, and I agree. That might be the closest one that Paul is referring to, but I don't even think that's it. I think the wrath that Paul is referring to is the, the wrath of abandonment. It's the wrath of turning us over to our ways. Right? That's what I believe he's referring to. Back in Judges chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, it says, You have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. This is the wrath that I believe that we're living out today. And it was as a result of sowing and reaping, we're reaping the abandonment of God. God has turned us over to our ways. C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Problem of Pain. I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. I do not mean that the ghosts may not wish to come out of hell in the vague fashion wherein an envious man wishes to be happy. But they certainly do not will even the first preliminary stages of self-abandonment through which alone the soul can reach any good. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved just as the blessed forever submitting to obedience become through all eternity more and more free. See, Paul declares that God's wrath is being revealed because of ungodliness that leads to unrighteousness. And, and we can grasp this idea just by going back to the Ten Commandments. You, you might remember those Ten Commandments where, where God declared, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make an idol. Right? Don't use my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. And so if we were to do those things, then relationships would be taken care of, right? We would honor our father and mother. We wouldn't commit adultery. We wouldn't murder. We wouldn't steal. We wouldn't give false testimony, and we wouldn't covet the things of our neighbor. But you see, when we follow paths of ungodliness, it will lead to unrighteousness, and, and that unrighteousness leads to us living in the wrath of God. And whenever scripture is repeated, there's something repeated over and over, we should really pay attention. And in our text, uh, Paul's going to show three times that, that God has turned us over or turned them over. And we get what that means, right? We get what it means to be turned over. It really, it's what God is saying is, okay, you want to make this choice? You want to live out the, the, the responsibility or the aspects of your freedom? Here you go. We can just go back and read about the prodigal son to see a, an illustration of that from God's word. The son wanted to leave his father. Give me my inheritance. And his father gave him his inheritance and he went away and squandered it until he realized how broken he was. Now, I think back to Preston when he was a young boy. We were playing the Ohio Christian softball tournament each year and a couple of his cousins were going over and getting in the stream and I told Preston to go over and get in that stream. And why not? Well, there's probably going to be broken glass in there and you'll cut your foot. And wouldn't you know it that Preston didn't listen to me and he went over and he got in the stream and what happened? He cut his foot. God gives us over to the choices that we want. Let's look at the first one. He says, God gave them up to lusts and impurities. Look at verses 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Did you know that all sin is a choice? 
It's a choice that we make, a conscious decision that, that we choose to walk away from God, his word, and his will for our lives. We don't stumble into sin. Well, I guess there's that possibility. But the truth is, is that we're carried away by our lusts and our impurities. James says it this way. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. And so when you put this together, we get this reality that, that when we continue to ignore God and his word and his will and his ways that he desires for us to live, that ultimately what God will begin to do is he'll, he'll turn us over to our lusts and our impurities. And it doesn't stop there. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another. Males with males committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their heir. Why would Paul point to that sin? I mean, is it as though Paul could see into the future and realize that this was going to be an issue for all societies of every time? No, it's because that sin was prevalent then as well. Prominent Greek men would not only have a wife, but they would have a male lover that they would dress as a woman. Many of the Roman emperors were said to have been bisexual and what I'm about to share comes directly from God's word. It's, it's not the opinion of a preacher. You may remember in this first, the first message from this series, you may remember that I said that we have to make a decision. And that decision that we have to make is this. Am I going to be obedient to God's word even when I don't agree with it? So unlike many who say no one is born a homosexual, I'm not here to declare that today because I, I, I never have struggled with the idea of homosexuality, but there are plenty of sins that I have struggled with, right? And I understand those struggles. And here's what I've come to realize, that we're broken. We live in a broken society, in a broken world. And when we turn our back on God's ways, his word and his will, he turns us over to impurities and lusts and if we continue to turn ourselves over to those things, eventually he turns us over to dishonorable passions. And when you look at our society, friends, don't you see it? And then we begin to make excuses for those who are in this sin. And, and yes, it is a sin. Why is it that we accept the fact that a drunkard should repent but reject homosexuality as a sin? Why is it that we accept the fact that a murderer is a sinner, but reject the fact that a homosexual is a sinner? Why is it that we accept the fact that adultery is sexual sin, but reject the reality that homosexuality is sexual sin? I mean, Paul, in this passage of Scripture, he opens this up for us and so that we can understand uh, this is what happens when we continue to ignore God's word, his ways, and his will for our lives, friends. And if that's not enough, if that's not enough for us, listen to what was written to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 
through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will, inherit the king, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, it says. And no matter what anybody wants to say, no matter what truth people try to skew, God's word is clear. Look what it says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. Friends, look over that list again. You know what that idea of a feminine is? It's a male dressing as a woman. I mean, God's word is clear. When we continue to ignore his ways, his word, and his will, he turns us over to our lusts and our impurities, and and that leads to turning ourselves over to dishonorable passions. Then God gave them up to a debased mind. Verses 28 through 32. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper, having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the righteous requirement of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. What is an unfit? What is a debased? What is a depraved mind? It's a mind that's incapable of doing righteous things. This lovely list of sins that Paul goes through, it's difficult to read. And today is one of the days that we kind of can get a picture of what depravity or what a depraved mind or an unfit mind, uh, a debased mind can lead to. Uh, Did you know that this Sunday is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday? What is the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday? Well, back in 1973, around this time frame, uh, is when Roe versus Wade came in. And since then, millions of babies have been slaughtered on the altar of choice. And listen, I'm unapologetic about this. There's a huge fear in my gut that God will hold people of faith accountable that are not fighting against this atrocity. According to the World Health Organization, there are 73 million induced abortions each year around the world. That would be 200,000 each day. It's estimated that there are between 2,500 and 4,000 abortions that take place in the United States of America each day. I remember seeing a woman stand up and accept one of those awards from Hollywood in which she basically declared that the only reason that she was able to accept this award is because of the fact that she chose to terminate a pregnancy. And do you know what the audience did in that moment? They started clapping and cheering as though there was some great victory that was won. It reminds me of our own state in this past year where we uh, voted in a constitutional amendment that you just needed a simple majority. And that was all around the 
idea of protecting a woman's right to get an abortion. Friends, this is what happens when we turn our back on God's word, his ways, and his will. He gives us over. He gives us over to an unfit, a debased mind. He gives us over so that we turn our bodies over to dishonorable passions. He gives us over, friends, to impurities and lusts in our hearts. So do you think we have a need? We could end the message right now and pray and go home, but I think that leaves us a little short. Because there really is good news. Remember, God's word declares he's not ashamed of the power of the gospel, for it's the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first and and also to the Greek, for in it the righteous will live by faith, from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Friends, we have good news. And so I want to finish our time together this morning focusing in on this reality of how we can avoid the wrath of God. And the first thing that we have to do, friends, is we have to receive the truth. If there's anything that's pricked your heart this morning, if there's any way that the Holy Spirit has come alongside God's word and this message and is is knocking on the door of your heart saying, pay attention, there's something going on here for you. Friends, receive that truth. Receive that truth because God, when he convicts us of our sin, his goal in convicting of us in our sin is not to condemn us to the pit of hell, but to give us an opportunity in this moment to come to him. So receive the truth. The Bible declares, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to give an account. Friends, we're going to give an account. I believe that God gives us these opportunities to be convicted from this book and from his word. And that opportunity is for a reason to receive the truth and to move on to the next point, to repent. To repent and turn to God and worship. The people of Nineveh are a perfect example of this. Jonah was sent to preach to this group of people. They heard the message of Jonah. They repented of their sin and God relented of his wrath. You see, when God points out our need, he points out our need so that we can come to him. God's desire is not that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We get that from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Christian friend, I think there's something that we need to repent of this morning as well. And it's not just the sins of commission, uh, the things that we do wrong, but it's our failure to see people who are far from God the same way Jesus saw them. He saw them with eyes of compassion as a sheep without a shepherd. He ministered to them. So I think if we receive his truth and we repent, it will put us in that final position, friends, to respond to the gospel, to respond to the gospel. And how do we respond? We respond by faith in Jesus Christ. We respond by trusting the finished work of Christ on the cross for our sins. Here in a couple of weeks, we're going to learn that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're building to that point of understanding that we all have a need for the gospel. Do you know your need? I love the words of Jesus here. 
John chapter 6, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that all he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Once again, he says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Friends, have you responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you know you're a sinner in need of his forgiveness and grace? Do you believe that Jesus died in your place? Are you willing to repent of your sin and turn toward him? Turn away from your sin and turn toward Christ. Are you willing to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life? Are you willing to submit to Christian baptism for the remission of your sins and the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit? Friends, this is how you respond to the gospel message. And if you're willing to do those things today, you can cross over from death to life in Jesus Christ. You can experience that power that I've spoken of so often so far. Once again, Paul declared, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. Friends, do you have that faith in Christ today? If not, what's keeping you from making that decision? Let me pray for us. Father, once again, thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity we've had to worship today. And it's my prayer, Lord, that each of us walk out of here free of your wrath and the power of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins that we can receive from him. And Lord, if there's a soul that's yet to make that decision, that your spirit will do his convicting work and lead us toward the cross where we can find life and hope. We love you. It's in Christ's most holy name we pray. Amen.